Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 15. We are in the midst of a series of messages on Psalm 23. And in the midst of that, we are halfway through the psalm. We have covered the first three verses of six verses of song. And so today is halftime. It's a time to take a break and do something a little different, make adjustments. Apparently Kentucky doesn't know how to make adjustments, but... Take a moment and just kind of settle for a second. But I want to do something along the same three in Psalm 23. In the next few weeks, we have great verses and truths ahead. Yea, through I walk through a valley next week, and goodness and mercy, and a table set before my enemies. Those are all coming up in those first three weeks of November, leading us towards the time of Thanksgiving. But I wanted today just to take a moment and talk about another place in Scripture where the imagery of a sheep is used to tell us something about God and about us. That happens in Luke chapter 15. Now Luke 15 is set in an interesting place because there are three parables in the book of Luke, although there are some that would claim that Luke 15 is actually the middle part or the ending part of five parables, parables about missed opportunities and missed priorities, and then three lost things. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever lost anything important? Ever lost anything significant? We all have, I'm sure, that moment when you rack your brain trying to think and remembering you thought when you put it wherever you put it. I put it in a place where I wouldn't forget it, and then you have forgotten it. As children, sometimes we misplace things. Part of our life, it feels like, as adults and parents, is all about recollecting the things we missed as children and lost in our own children losing things. Shoes, socks, homework, folders, uniforms. Hypothetically, you know what it's like to lose something and be frantic about it, right? I'm not talking about if you lost a ticket stub that you kind of wanted to hold on to or a penny that dropped through the cracks. I'm talking about when you've misplaced major items or things in your life. As I was getting older and I am getting older, as we all are. I realized I was misplacing things a little more than I used to, for whatever reason. And my best friends have become tile and the Apple AirTag that lets you see exactly where things are. I jokingly sometimes used to say that I have an Apple Watch just because it tells me where my phone is. But I use that a lot because I'm constantly misplacing. Anybody else here? I just need, thank you, Carla, I see that hand. Right? So today we're going to talk about one of the parables of the lost things. And it starts in chapter 15. Jesus has, by the way, just come off of a time of being at a banquet where he was questioned about the company that he is keeping. And then also talking about the people that are invited into the kingdom of God and how it will shock many of those. And then he tells them about the cost of following Jesus. And it says that at this moment... You have two diverse and interesting groups of people gathering around Jesus. 
We're going to read the whole parable, and then we'll break it down verse by verse and come up with a couple of things for us to notice. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need for repentance. Jesus tells these three parables, the parables of the lost sheep and of the lost coin and of the lost son, to a group of people that are divergent in their makeup, that are different in being around. In fact, groups of people that aren't normally around one another. It starts by telling us that there were tax collectors and sinners. Those were two distinct sets of people, and yet most people would have thought of them in a similar way. Tax collectors were exactly that, people that collected taxes. When we think about tax collectors in the Bible, there are a couple of of famous ones, right? There's Matthew, Levi, who became a disciple of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus. And then you have Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed a sycamore tree. In both cases, we're reminded that these were men who were not liked by the people around them. And the reason for that is because the Roman government exercised their right, according to their law, to enact many taxes on the people. They had a tax just for being counted as being a Roman citizen or someone that lived in a Roman territory. So they would come and do the census. Can you imagine how many of these would get returned? A census form was sent to your house or a census taker would come to your house and you would have to pay the census taker to count you. Then you had to give a tenth of everything that you made to the Roman government. And so a tenth of whatever money you may have made. But most people in that society did not deal in money as much as they did in goods. And so if you were a um, a fisherman and you caught fish, 10% of your fish went back to the Roman government. On top of that, they would charge you taxes for road usage or taxes for usage of various public areas. They would charge you taxes for being Jewish, taxes for being people that were not Roman citizens. And exorbitant taxes began to rise to the point that some people were paying more in taxes than to just about anything else. In fact, some were paying 40 to 50 to 60% in taxes. Now here's what made tax collectors particularly unlikable is that the Roman government would employ local people to... Take those taxes from you. People considered them to be traitors. To be people that worked for the other team, that worked for the enemy. And so tax collectors, when they were announced in most places, when they would have said, and he was with tax collectors in most places in Jewish life, they would have hissed or booed. 
Sinners were people that just decided they didn't care about God's law and they weren't going to try to live by it. At least that's the way it started. But it came to mean anyone that didn't keep the law as closely to the law as they could. They were considered dirty and vile and people you shouldn't be around. And yet it says in Scripture that Jesus is constantly attracting these people. Outcasts, sinners, tax collectors, people that the religious establishment wouldn't even talk to or touch or be around. They flocked to Jesus. The picture we get here is that Jesus is teaching and he's teaching and the Pharisees and the scribes are listening. They're there trying to catch him on something, try to trap him some way, try to figure out his theological positions. And while they are there trying to figure all that out, the sinners and the tax collectors can't help but get close to him and they're nudging their way in, pushing their way in. And probably the comments that are coming from Pharisees and scribes there that it describes in the next verse is, Doesn't he know that he should be talking to us and not to them? He's throwing away his opportunity because he keeps wrestling around and talking to and being around people like them. Pharisees and scribes had a name for people that did not measure up to who they were. They were called people of the land. And they didn't associate with them. And they didn't think they deserved time of day. And in this moment, when these people are gathering around, it says that they levied this accusation against him. That this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And my guess is that what Jesus really wanted to say to the scribes And the Pharisees is guilty as charged. I do. And what's wrong with that? But he doesn't do it in that quite open of a way. Jesus is able to tell a story and bring the lesson around on the backside of it and convict the people that would have heard it without them realizing they were being convicted. Now, Jesus taught in parables a lot. But parables are found in other places in Scripture too. When Nathan confronts David, do you remember that story? After David has um, committed adultery, that has been unfaithful and he's had... The husband murdered in the midst of that. Nathan confronts him several months later and basically says, what if they had this little lamb that everybody loved this little lamb? They love on this lamb and they want it. There's sheep again and they're talking to it and they take it and he took it for his own. And he said that that man should be cast out. And Nathan says, you are the man. Jesus is doing that here. He is setting them up because people love a good story. I can tell that from where I stand. Because oftentimes when I get deep into theological points, I see the eyes glaze. I see people start to fade. I see the general posture kind of relax. I see the yawns come out. And yet... 
when I say, but let me tell you about something that happened the other day. Or I start with an interesting person that no one or a story that's going. As I do that, I see you sit up a little bit. You start to move forward a little bit. It starts to come. Now, my job as a pastor is to intermix those in order to get a point across that Scripture wants me to teach, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here right now. He says, yes, I do eat with sinners and tax collectors, but... Let me tell you why. Now, this is the first time he's been accused of it in the scripture. It's not the first time that he has addressed it. In another instance, they're like, you eat with sinners and tax collectors. And when Matthew actually is called and he goes to Matthew's house and he says, you're right, because the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick that do. And so as he begins this time, it says in verse three, he told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them? What man does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Now he's going to speak to something they would be aware of. What's kind of ironic about this is he's going to tell them a story and a parable about sheep. And although, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, many of the people in the Old Testament were shepherds that were revered people in the Old Testament, including David, that shepherding had become a dirty and outcast profession. It's why when we talk about Christmas in a few weeks, when we talk about the nativity and the shepherds are there, it is always astounding that the shepherds are the first group of people to hear the news because in the temple they would have been considered unclean at that moment and not able to spend time in the holy place. And yet the angels come and declare that they are able to go and see the Holy One wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. And so he begins this parable about a shepherd and he says which one of you if you had a hundred sheep and 99 of them are good but one strays off and is a lost would not go after the sheep now let's talk some more about sheep we've talked about this over the last few weeks that in scripture sheep are reminded that they're like us because they are aimless and not smart right and defenseless And so what happens in this story is a sheep gets lost. In fact, the only thing the sheep does in this story is gets lost. Let that sit where it needs to for us as human beings that we are compared to sheep. The only thing we're good at apparently is getting lost. Unable to find our way. By the way, do you know that the part of our brain that deals with directions, according to scientific research, is dwindling year by year. Some of you wives are punching your husbands right now. I understand that. Do you know why it's dwindling year after year? Three letters. GPS. We're not using it, and we get lost more often than we used to, and we don't have it. We're good at getting lost. Not just physically or with driving directions, but spiritually. He says, how many of you, if you had sheep and you had a hundred and one got off, that you wouldn't go after the one? And the reason for that is because a lost sheep was often a dead sheep. And if you were a shepherd and you lost a sheep, 
you had to pay for the sheep with your own money because it was your responsibility to take care of the sheep. And so he says, if you have one, you're going to go find it because there's a chance that it could be off in the side of the road. It could be, it could have fallen off the edge. It could be in a crack. It could be, as we talked about last week, cast or turned over. And if it's turned over for very long, it literally will die. It could be attacked by predators. It could have wandered into a place where there's no grass for it to eat. There's no water for it to drink. And so the picture here is, he says, if you you have 99 good sheep, but one has get lost. Wouldn't you go after it with all you have? And then, once you found it, he says, that shepherd doesn't make the sheep walk back, doesn't make the sheep feel disappointed in who he is, but just simply picks the sheep up and carries it. I just want to remind you, most of us, when we we picture this this particular picture, we think of a lamb. Like, you know, just a cute little lamb. Just pick it up in your arms and carry it back. Like a cute little puppy dog. We're talking about a sheep that's probably around 100 pounds in this illustration. The way you would do that is often they would drape it around their neck, this huge lamb, and carry that 100-pound weight back the entire way. And here's what I love about this particular verse in verse 5. It says, when he has found it, he joyfully. By the way, joy is a theme throughout Luke 15. The point is when he finds the sheep, when he finds the, she finds the coin, when the son returns... There is great joy in it. In fact, just in this particular one, it tells us in verse 6 and 7 again, in the same way there will be more joy. And so the picture here is him bringing the sheep back. And as he's bringing the sheep back, he yells out to all those who are around that he's walking back into town. Hey, everybody, I found my sheep. Hey, I know we thought he was lost. He is found. We thought we had lost him for good, but I have got him back. He could have been dead, but he is now alive. Rejoice! Because I found my lost sheep. Verse 7 says, And I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now we're going to talk about that last part in just a moment. But this is a brilliant rhetorical method by Jesus. He takes actually a quote from the Pharisees and the scribe of their day, turns it just a little bit and makes it into something that would cut them to the heart. Because the Pharisees and the scribes, remember, they had these people of the land, these sinners, these outcasts that didn't deserve God's love or God's mercy or God going after them. And in fact, what they would say, one of their sayings is that God rejoices over a sinner who is punished. So Jesus says that's not what God rejoices over. God rejoices over a sinner who is saved. I don't know what the reaction of the Pharisees were to this particular moment. He moves on pretty quickly, apparently, to the widow and or the woman who lost her coin and then to the lost son. 
But in that statement, he was basically saying, you're right, I eat with sinners and tax collectors. And I do it because that's what God would want me to do. So what do we learn from this passage of Scripture? We learn a couple of things about God and then something about us. Some of those are tied together. And the first thing we learn is that God loves you. Individually, you. He loves us, absolutely. He loves the world, that's true. But God loves you. He knows you better than anyone else knows you, even better than you know yourself. He knows your motivations. He knows your reasons. He knows your excuses. He knows your actions. He knows your thoughts. He knows what happens in the light. He knows what happens in the dark. He knows absolutely everything about you, and still He loves you. Every single one of you. Maybe you're here today and you feel beat up or like you don't know if that's true or life seems to be just running you through the ringer and it seems like you get just a little bit ahead and then you get knocked back down. Or you hear the old phrase, two steps forward and one step back. It feels like all you've been doing lately is taking steps back. And you're wondering, does anybody care? Is anybody out there? Does anybody want to love me? And here's the truth. If nobody else on this planet loves you, which I highly doubt, but if that were true, God does. Here's the second thing that we learn from this particular passage of Scripture in this parable is, not only does God love you individually, God loves all people. Every single person. Bill Hybels is famous for saying that You have never stared eye to eye with anyone in your life that God loves more or less than He loves you. Now, that's important for us to understand about ourselves, that God loves us, but it's also important for us to understand that every single person on the planet, God loves at the same level He loves you. It doesn't matter their socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter their racial status. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum they're on. It doesn't matter what side of the world their own. It doesn't matter where they are in government or in life or in family or in neighborhoods. It doesn't matter where they grow up in the world. Every single person on the planet, God loves them individually. He knows them and he loves them. To us, it's just a number, the billions of people that are out there. To God, they are individual people. Our mind cannot comprehend the individuality of the masses. And yet God knows every person by name. I mean, Scripture tells us the detail to which He knows every person is that He knows the number of hairs on every head of every person in the world. Now, for some, that's much easier than others. God knows everyone of them. And He loves them. Third thing we learn about God, not only does God love you, not only does God love all people, the third thing we learn in this parable is that God pursues people. He goes after people. 
He hunts down people. Because He loves them. Can I tell you, there may be some of you in this room, maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've kind of walked onto a path that is not exactly where God would want you. God will pursue you down that path. And sometimes your life may get uncomfortable, not because, just because of the circumstances that you've created in your own life, but because God may be making your life uncomfortable in some ways because that is the way He is pursuing you in the most loving way possible. There's some of you in this room that have run from God. Maybe you grew up in a house where people went to church and you've decided that's not for you and you've run from God in the midst of that. God is pursuing you. He is exalting and rejoicing over the victories and the wins in your life. If we know that God loves us individually, if we know that God loves all people and we know that God pursues people, here's what we need to understand as believers. We're called to be His ambassadors. As if God is making it through us. And if that is true, we are called to love and pursue people with all that we have. As individuals and as a church, our top priority is loving and pursuing people telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping to show them what it looks like to be in a relationship with Him. Anytime that a church's priorities or an individual's priorities moves from a place of loving and pursuing people to some other priority, we have gotten off of the path God intended for us. Anytime your life becomes more about protecting what you've gotten, anytime your life becomes about accumulating more stuff, anytime your life becomes about the routine of what you have established instead of loving and pursuing people, you have gotten off the path that God intends for you to go. Let me also say as a church, anytime our church becomes about protecting what we have and prioritizing that, or becomes about protecting what we have developed or the programs that we have installed. It comes about more about the systems that we've established to govern who we are. Instead of loving and pursuing people, we have gotten off of the path that God intends for us to go. And particularly here, I'm talking about, yes, we need to love each other. We need to take care of each other. But particularly here, I'm talking about in Scripture, it makes it clear that our number one priority as a church is to glorify God. Our number one priority in life is to glorify God. And the best way to do that is to seek out and to love and to pursue and to share the gospel with people that do not yet follow Him as their Savior. How do we know that? Because in Scripture, when it talks about rejoicing, the biggest moments of rejoicing are reserved for those moments when a sinner when a tax collector, when a wayward child of God comes home and is brought into the family of God. And when we stop celebrating and focusing and spending towards that, then we have gotten off the path that God intended for us to follow. We have a great preschool children 
youth programs here. And all the statistics out there tell you that if someone doesn't commit their life to Christ by the time they are 18, then the percentage of them committing it later in life goes down precipitously. And I am thankful to the Lord for the way that we share the gospel, for the way that people are told the gospel, how people are offered the gospel. I mean, in the last year, the number of kids that we've had in our youth and our children that have responded to the gospel has been something that has been encouraging as we continue to move forward. Forty, fifty kids that have in some way committed their life for the first time to Jesus Christ. Man, that's what we're about. But there are numerous people in our area that either don't go to a church or haven't been exposed to the gospel in a way that is relevant to them, that we need to be about pursuing and loving those people. That's part of the reason I love tonight. It's part of the reason um, we're going to make sure we do the fall festival and we do it well tonight because it's developed a reputation in the community that's a great fall festival. And it is an opportunity for us in that moment to interact with people in our community in a way that shows them that we love and we care about them and that's hope we hope that's what it is it's not an inconvenience to us to have people somebody asked me the other day is that going to mess up stuff if we have to move it inside the church maybe our church may get messed up some who wouldn't leave the 99 to find the one the moment we become more worried about whether our church gets messed up than if someone gets saved, that's a problem. At the same time, if people just walk through here and get candy and don't walk out and don't hear the gospel at some point or don't interact with by our church, then we've missed an opportunity there too. So it's, it's fun to hand out candy and hamburgers and hot dogs, and I am so thankful for everybody that's a part of that. But we need to pursue and love on them past that as well. What's God calling you to do in service of pursuing and loving people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this little parable, this story. Just a couple of verses, Lord, that is so powerful in its impact because it shows, it exposes the heart of what's behind so many people. Lord, it's easy, even as people that have been saved, to, to kind of wash ourselves of all of that and be sanitized and feel like we can't interact with people now because we're clean and we're good. And yet, Lord, you remind us again and again that you have saved us in order that we might be your witnesses and ambassadors to others. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a church and would be people that would love and pursue people. Lord, I pray that if there are those in this room that have not yet accepted you as their Savior, that have not yet experienced the love of that in their life, Lord, that today would be the day when they will respond to your call and your pursuit. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not yet know what it means that you love them, that today would be a day of understanding for them. Lord, I pray in this place 
If there's someone that's not saved, Lord, that you would make them uncomfortable in this moment and that they would know what they need to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.